because, because I'm a hot I'm girl. A hot, I'm girl. A I do hot shit. Because I'm a hot Simps, Simpettes, and Simpex, welcome back to the Hot Girl Agenda. A small note about the episode, demonic forces were present during the live stream and distorted the audio very weirdly on my end. So if you're wondering why I suddenly sound like Elizabeth Holmes about a third of the way through, that's the reason. When I first heard the warped audio, I thought about scrapping it as a podcast episode, but ultimately I didn't want to deprive people of hearing Brandon and Aaron's perspectives on such an important topic. So hope you forgive the weirdness and enjoy the episode. We were just talking about struggle meals and also um, like ordering takeout and stuff. What's your struggle meal? Uh, ramen, like always. That's right. not the yeah. Well, how do you how do you prepare your ramen? Do you just do uh, it? I, you just put the packet in there and eat it. I throw an egg in there. Yeah, I, I throw egg an egg drop. in there, like mix it up. I throw some shit in there, but like, I mean, other than that, I guess like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's not even struggle though. That's just like These are low level struggle. You're eating the same struggle meals you had when you were six. <laughs> I mean, I mean that is that is the struggle though, man. That is like living. To get a paternalistic capitalist society where I feel like a child always forever. So that's how I feel when I eat like a cup of noodles. When you know, when I was younger, my parents like my dad didn't have time to cook after you know school or whatever because uh, he was a teacher. He would be like, "All right, cup of noodles with peas and like frozen peas and carrots in it," and we ate that three times a week. And my brother, he cannot like eat it anymore. He's like, I don't know how you fucking eat that shit. Oh, it just reminds me of being young and poor. And I'm like, yeah, I don't I, know. It's like my comfort. I, I, I don't know. Like it just tastes good still. I it's mean, soft. like it's like it's like when you go to the bar and it's like, yo, I'm gonna get like a shitty ass beer that I usually get. Like a PBR, man. It's like the people's beer, dude. I don't care about especially uh, yeah. the Atlanta. I don't care about the trap shit. You know what I mean? Like I'm good. Dude. Yeah, I'm a dirt I, guy. I, I still drink PBR and uh, Miller High Life. Uh, I, once in a while, I'll get a Corona. I'm a very cheap beer person. Yeah. Once in a while, I'll get like y'all go to a bar and get one of these India Pale Ales or whatever. Yeah. I but can't I, drink I like beer it. anymore. It gives yeah. me a headache. It's oh, not, this is how I know I'm getting old. It's like my my like my, my constitution is like I will have like one beer and I'll be like I'm so fucking full. I feel like I ate like a shitload of rice just now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, are, you drinking, are you a liquor person now, Aurora? Liquor person anymore either, because that shit just brings up like flashbacks of like blacking out drunk when I was in my twenties. I like wine now. I'm such a, I am kind of bougie. Whatever. Um, I like a, I like a nice sparkling rosé. I'm fine. Like you caught me. I'm a lib about it. I got also spoiled in the strip club because I would just drink champagne all the time. That's the only way I get to be bougie is when I'm at work. So, which is weird. But yeah. Anyway, so not to, wait. <laughs> so wait we're gonna, yeah, give what? your drink preferences and then. I don't know if I can put this on stream. I don't know if I can put this on stream, but I'm drinking a White Claw. I don't like know if I can. I don't know. If uh, I, yeah, that's that's what I've been doing recently, just because like I can't handle malt liquor anymore. Like White Claw, mm -hmm. please send me like a crate, and I will tweet. I will sponsor me, and I will tweet that shit out every day. Because yeah, 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 man, they're just easy to go yeah. down, and okay. you know, I'm drinking sugar water, dude, that has alcohol in it. It's tight. There should yeah. really be like some affiliate program. That somebody <laughs> somewhere will send you some alcohol. 
I don't know whether yeah. it'd be good at my club. There's they'll, gotta they'll sponsor be. you. There's somebody. I wish I could get sponsored by some nice ass like company that made like rose because that shit rules, man. It's so nice. Yeah, <laughs> dude. No, it is. It really is, man. Like I try to stay away from like liquor in general just because I get like I get headaches and stuff from drinking liquor. But like I don't know, man. Rose, like as opposed to just beer or anything else, is just it's sweet, man. It's so fruity. <laughs> Yeah. In, well, I like so I like drier. I like drier rosés, and I like the sparkling rosés um, because you know you. I'm going for like the effervescence. <laughs> yeah. Like it feels nice. Yeah. It's like, mm, yeah. Me and I am a child. I have a child's taste buds, so I'm like I'm trying to look for soda that isn't soda. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I feel you, dude. Yeah, man. Look at us just anyway, talking about a weird intro. Hey, you know, yeah. Yeah. For me, for it's perfect. Yeah. You know what gives me a headache? Police brutality. <laughs> No, yeah, I'm like not to like totally dip and be like, here's a serious thing. That is the reason why Aaron's on. And I asked Aaron to be on to talk about Louisville stuff. Um, and Brandon's kind enough to stick around as well, mainly because when I was looking into this and I realized like how much there was to cover on the topic, it was pretty staggering. And I was like, I'm going to need help with mm-hmm. this. And that's what comrades are for, right? Oh. That's what the... That's what the streaming community is for, is <laughs> for helping each other understand these things. Hell yeah. Um, so first of all, I, I wanted to go ahead and introduce Aaron. Um, Aaron, can you like tell us a little bit about yourself and like plugs you got? Yeah, uh, I'm Aaron. I live in Atlanta. I don't even know what to say about myself. I guess like I'm a communist. Um, don't do much organizing nowadays. Most of my shit is on Twitter, unfortunately. But um, hopefully after this whole COVID thing is over if you know i'll be able to get back into it but um yeah i'm coming out with a podcast soon um under not safe media called uh, time of monsters mm-hmm. which is pretty much chronicling our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it we i'll be speaking to smart and influential figures on the left such as uh glenn greenwell matt chrisman uh gravel institute sean kb from the antifada malika jabal i mean i just got like i'm just running through a list of like yeah just the, the you know the cloud, the like cloud, no big the deal, cloud like... you know how not safe to man you know but um <laughs> no no it's 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 gonna be um and also just some of my personal comments brandon is actually i'm gonna interview him um later this week and we're gonna talk a little bit about gsa and black socialism and whatnot so i'm just trying to you know uh have an educational kind of project my twitter's for chip posting and this cool. will project will be intercepted for the dumbass left so Nice. I don't agree with that whole like thing that goes around on Twitter every couple of months. Leftists get jealous of each other and they're like, podcasting isn't organizing. It totally can be. It can be be educational. It can be, you know, providing catharsis for your comrades is very critical. It's not all just us going on Zoom meetings and fucking like doing boring shit. It is like being there for your your buddies and providing a a shoulder to to cry on and People to talk to and community. Yeah. So community is important. Yeah. So don't don't ever talk yourself down like oh, that oh. on my screen. <laughs> posting is practice. Uh, You're right, Robert. Posting is practice. Posting is pra- it, can it can be, be practice. practice. I'm not saying that everybody out there, especially my especially my detractors, yeah. <laughs> they are not doing organizing. Um, no. They're counter revolutionaries. Uh, they're counter revolutionary. <laughs> it is known. I actually heard that anybody who does not hit retweet when you are posting uh, a new episode is counter revolutionary. Is my ideological enemy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so tonight, the reason why we're having this kind of panel is because we wanted to talk about the stuff in Louisville, um, which I, I just learned how to pronounce properly because I am not from the States. So I always Louisville? thought it was Louisville. I was calling it Louisville. Uh, Lu- it's, like, I was like Louisville. Like, pronouncing it real white. So it's pronounced Louisville. Louisville. 
and I might even be getting that like wrong. Atlanta, like Atlanta, Atlanta, Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. No, hot Atlanta. Uh, hot Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> people are going to be mad about that. Um, <laughs> just to recap what's been going on with the Louisville protests, uh, Louisville is um, the uh, city that Breonna Taylor lived in before she was murdered by the police. And they released her verdict last week for the um, the three cops that were um, supposed to be charged for her murder as she was sleeping in her home. And they released the verdict that only one of the cops was going to be prosecuted. And it was not for a murder. It was for wanton endangerment, which has a maximum of, of I think, five years imprisonment if you get the max uh, penalty. They really said white drywall matters, bro. <laughs> dead, dead ass, bro. <laughs> yeah, they said it with their whole, whole chest. chest. Uh, <laughs> I want to let y'all talk about this more because I don't want to like kind of, I don't want to you know take up too much of the air in the room about this. The protests are like basically, um, so so basically when they, they released the verdict, they already had National Guard in place to basically because they knew they f- they fucked up preemptively. Mm-hmm. And what they wanted to do was stop any kind of riots from happening. Not stop, but they just basically wanted to punish anybody that was going to act out because of this mm-hmm. verdict and punish the community further instead of just doing what was right and, you know, charging three officers for murder. So some of the updates on the protests, and I don't know if y'all have heard about this, but one of the state representatives, Attica Scott, she was arrested before the curfew was implemented on Thursday night, and she was charged with a Class D felony. So if she's convicted, she loses her right to vote and hold public office. Um, 30 other protesters were arrested that night. And um, in the way and on Sunday, a black man's body was in the street and it apparently had been out all night after the cops had apparently shot him. Um, so this is what's going on right now. Oh, and their body cams were turned off, of course. So I just want to like give it all over to y'all and just get your opinions on what's going on right now and like the conditions there. I mean, I don't know, man. Like, whenever this stuff happens, like these, uh, we were talking about a little bit in the stream earlier, not safe and wonks, but whenever these things happen, there's always like this numbness that I kind of feel where it's like, well, I knew it was going to happen, you know? And then the next day is like utter rage. And I think like what's most insulting is like the wanton endangerment. You know, people were saying on Twitter that pretty much she got charged for the bullets that didn't miss her body. I mean, Hankinson, um, I think his name is Brett Hankinson. He, he was reprimanded in 2019 for, um, I think it was excessive force or something like that. So like, this is a guy who, and this often happens with police departments. This is a guy who had prior complaints, um, you know, uh, pushed against him and, you know, it, I mean, and this happens, right? This is the natural result when you keep these people on the force, right? Um, and I was watching the stream that night of the no indictment from Concrete Reporting on Twitch. Uh, recommend people follow them as well if you kind of want to see some on the ground stuff. But uh, essentially what the cops did when they declared the curfew was that they told people to go home. Protesters are trying to leave and they kettled them onto a street right in front of the police station. And um, I'm watching this like live as it's happening. And they told them to sit down and were not pepper spraying them, but using pepper balls, you know? So people are sitting down while being arrested while also having to deal with like, and if you've never been pepper sprayed before or anything like that, or tear gas, like that shit makes it 
that incredibly, I mean, difficult to breathe, you know, to see anything. Um, and just the way that, you know, again, like you were saying, Rara, just setting up barricades, you know, and preparing and putting the, the state in a state of emergency and preparing for this no indictment was just, I mean, it's, it's, it's insulting. And coming from David, what's his name? David Cameron, which is, he's a black AG of Kentucky, mm-hmm. right? Um, he's on Trump shortlist, um, for a Supreme Court nomination. It's just like that, that to me makes it equally disgusting, you know? So, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I don't know where the protests go from here. It, it just seems like we're seeing this completely authoritarian, fascistic crackdown on protesters, you know, and, um, I don't know, just shout out to all my comrades, you know, in Louisville. Yeah. Thank you for anybody that's on the ground right now doing, doing the damn thing. Uh, we appreciate you. We're here for you. And I'm going to go ahead and put up a banner for the bail fund for, for Louisville. It's the bailproject.org and you can go ahead and donate to that. Yeah. One, one of the things that struck me the most about the way they set this up before the verdict. And I, I made a tweet about it. They chose to bring in the National Guard to activate all these cops, to arm all these cops. The fact that they could even arm all these cops is ridiculous to me. But they chose to activate all these cops and National Guard and put all these resources towards preventing uh, protesters from expressing themselves um, and even just gathering peacefully. How many millions of dollars did they throw at this one night instead of just convicting the people that were guilty of it? Yeah. They are oppressing an entire population, thousands and thousands of people, so that they could protect three cops. If people tell you that they're not convinced that we live in a white supremacist state. They're just not, they're, they're delusional yeah. and they're lying. And you can just look from a mathematics perspective about how much it actually costs to uphold white supremacy. And you can see that it would have been less expensive to just prosecute them properly. Yeah. They chose the more expensive destructive option because they don't care about black lives. They don't care about protesters. They don't care about justice. So it, it is really like hard to fucking like synthesize that as, um, as a person. So I can only imagine what it's like for the people that live there, you know, because this is obviously not the first time that a, a black person has been shot and killed by the cops. It's not the first time that a black person has been shot and killed by a white person. I mean, there was that Kroger shooting in like 2018. It was a white guy who killed like two black people and one of the people on the ground that was in the shooting, um, the guy came, the, the shooter came up to, I think it was a woman, the shooter came up to the woman and said, oh, um, if you don't shoot me, I won't shoot yeah. you. Whites don't. Yeah, exactly. Whites. Like we're on the same side type of shit. Yeah. That was like 2018. Mm-hmm. And that was in Louisville. And like, I just want to touch on this a little bit because it's like, it, it's important to know that these tensions don't just come out of one event. This is cumulative. This is like a whole history of white supremacy. And this is, it's reaching the head. I just wanted to add another note about the, the black man that was left on the street um, on Sunday night. The body cams, of course, were turned off by Louisville PD. So there's no evidence of what really happened. And this person, this guy, he was known for giving cops free meals at his barbecue restaurant. 
it does not matter if you're friends with these people. It does not matter like if they're civil to you. They are the enemy, straight yeah. up. The, the thing that actually stands out to me about, <laughs> about the background of that shooting is the drug war. Because the thing that actually is in the background of of all of that is the no knock raids. Are you trying to zoom me, Rara? I, I hear that you've you've muted yourself. You've blown the stream uh, boomer, up. Boomer brain strikes again. Sorry. Boomer brain. Okay. But yeah, the no knock warrants, all of that has its roots in the drug war uh, of the late 80s, early 90s, and kind of like the Joe Biden era of American politics uh, was, you know, they would go to a place and they would knock and they would get, you know, their um, identify themselves. And if you've seen Goodfellas, you know, uh, Henry Hill runs to the bathroom and gets the big bag of cocaine and flushes it down the toilet. And people were like, well, we can't have this. Uh, people can't just flush the drugs down the toilet and have there no be, be no evidence. And also, you know, they're worried about, will someone shoot back if we say, like, the police are here? So that's part of the political impetus for no-knock raids. And this stuff, these no-knock raids have had, like, disastrous consequences for many people who have not had, like, the national attention uh, of Breonna Taylor's case. And if you go back, we did a whole episode talking about no-knock raids uh, on our show. Uh, but we just talked about how just so many people have been caught up in these raids and been shot accidentally or caught in crossfires or uh, weren't resisting and got shot anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all races, genders, colors. Uh, it's just been a total disastrous policy. And the other thing that really stands out to me uh, is like the gentrification background because yeah. this actual yeah. property was one that was in a neighborhood where they were trying to price everybody out. And mm-hmm. if they can like get you on something and force you out of the house or lower the property values, then that developer that's got like the big pile of cash and wants to start their next project uh, can like move in in the wake of it. And it's kind of frustrating because all these things, they come together and they form the financial backing for uh, the police as a unit. And they also form like the propaganda backing uh, through, you know, the media and between that and the physical arm of that, which is like stuff like the drug war and no knock warrants, which they all kind of feed in on each other. And they create like a population that's afraid, that is willing to spend money that the city doesn't have on brutal tactics that don't help mm-hmm. any of the population and cause harm to just a, a smaller slice of the population and doesn't really do much for like the, the people of the city or the state as a whole. Uh, it sucks and it's very frustrating to have to go to these court cases and dude my ex uh was was really into the Trayvon Martin case and would like watch the court proceedings all the time and she thought it was a slam dunk and I'm like no dude America there's too much money involved and like obvious conclusions don't get reached which mm-hmm. is why George Zimmerman is still like alive and selling t-shirts or whatever gross thing he's doing for money right now. Right. Yeah. Um, It's it's a real bummer, man. It's a bummer. Yeah. I want to touch on the gentrification aspect because, um, you know, 
we're talking about Louisville, but we live in Atlanta, and I'm sure you guys saw that story recently of that APD officer who um, left the force because uh, he was being forced to uh, pretty much write uh, tickets and, you know, execute warrants and things like that and harass people who live in this um, Section 8 housing because the only way for developers to kind of claim that, like, that property and that land for development especially if you're on Section 8, right, is uh, if people, residents there are convicted of a felony, right? Like, they tried many different things to try to get those people out, but essentially, like, you know, unless you commit, you know, a felony in public housing, that's the only way that, like, you can be evicted, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is a part of, like, as a as a Marxist, right, as a historical materialist, uh, this is a, a larger continued project of settler colonialism, Right. Yeah. Um, it literally is is terrorizing and wiping people out, even if it means there's collateral damage, as there was in the case of Breonna Taylor, where Hankinson shot 10 times and some of the shots went into uh, an adjacent apartment where there was a pregnant woman as well. Right. So um, and, you know, it's it's not even about whether individual police are bad. Right. Mm-hmm. But again, as you were saying, Brandon, this is what fascism is when you have the financial backing of real estate capitalism that is using these special bodies of armed men. That's law enforcement um, to uh, gentrify neighborhoods. It's, it's not just a coffee, a boutique coffee shop, you know, or a vape shop going up in your neighborhood. It actually affects like the lives, the material lives of people going so far as to claim their lives for for fucking nothing at all. And the thing that's really tragic about it is, and you can speak to this as being a, being an Atlantan, is people are happy for those things when they first see them. Like regular people, like if you talk to your mom or your uncle or you go to a barber shop, mm-hmm. any of this stuff like that they see, they're like, yeah, cool. It's good to have some nice shit in, in my neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, so when they see that first house, they're like, yeah, cool. When they see like a CVS, uh, they're like, yeah, cool. Uh, it's not for like a couple of years when other things start rate going up in price and they can't afford to live there. And obviously, you know, gentrification is like a decade long project really in most neighborhoods, but uh, it's not until your prices start going up that you're like, wait, what's happening here? And people don't always know the connection between the two Mm -hmm. until somebody points it out to them. Uh, Otherwise they're thinking, yeah, it's nice to have nice stuff and the cost of living. They just think, Man, life gets harder every year. Uh, yeah, it's hard to connect <laughs> concepts. Usually, yeah. because people are too busy to too busy working to to really understand how to even connect those thoughts. Like, oh, that's a nice coffee shop. Oh, my rent's going up. Wonder why that's happening. And it's like that's a legitimate thing. Like, people just don't understand why those two things are connected. But also, like how policing reinforces it, because like when I was researching this. And I found this article about how the gentrification project for that particular area in Louisville was like the family, uh, the lawyers for Breonna Taylor's family are saying in court documents that this police squad, place-based investigations, mm-hmm. that's the name of the police squad, which just sounds like a fucking nightmare, mm-hmm. right? It, they de- like place-based investigations, this police squad deliberately misled narcotics detectives to target a home on Elliott, Ave- Elliott Avenue, leading them to believe they were after some of the large, the city's largest violent crime and drug rings. So we have the police weaponized, like pointed literally at these communities 
and told, get them out of here. Here's what I'm wondering. Like, are they, I don't know that they're explicitly told that they're, that that's what they're doing. But the fact that that is what they are being used for, I think is probably why that guy ended up being like leaving the force, right? Yeah. Is because he realized that he was being used um, by these development companies uh, and by the cities and by the uh, city council people that collude with them to like enable this kind of shit. And it's a, it's really scary because it's like, I mean, I'm, I've lived in Atlanta for four years um, and my neighborhood's being gentrified and it's very fucking scary. I just came from there this morning, man, because uh, my ex um, friend lives over there and I'm, I'm there all the time. So I, I like mm-hmm. see it. And I just want to add, Rara, like that article that you were talking about that you sent us earlier. The city moved to purchase her ex-boyfriend's home. And the fair market value of the home was $17,000 and, uh, $17,160. And they ended up purchasing it for a dollar. That's like, that's like, like, like if you, if you, if you need like any more reason to believe that a lot of what is happening now with all of these, I mean, Trayvon Martin is another example, right? Kyle Rittenhouse is another example. When Kyle Rittenhouse says, or Trayvon Martin as a, you know, neighborhood patrol or whatever like that, right? Like protecting private property. When Kyle Rittenhouse says that he went to protect private property, I I know a lot of people on the left were like, no, he was going there to kill like, you know, anti Antifa and stuff like that. But no, like literally in these people's minds, whether they recognize it or not, this is a project of settler colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is why you cannot separate class and race in this country, you know? Because it is all this continuous project of of liquidating undesirable people from previously disinvested in and newly found invested in, right, Mm -hmm. neighborhoods. This is why you see around the Beltline in Atlanta, man, you see heavier policing now, right? You have been seeing that the past couple of years, you know. So, I mean, what what we say, like, in, you know, the housing rights advocate community, I used to work for Housing Justice League of Atlanta, is that we want development without displacement, right? Right. That's what we want, right? Because so, it is possible. It is possible. Yeah, it is. But we see it all the time in this country how it's just done with callous disregard for the people that have lived there their whole lives and like have ha- had families that have lived there for generations. And that is like why when when we say capitalism is violence, like this is what we're fucking talking about as communists because any kind of system that prioritizes that prioritizes development for development's sake and profit for profit's sake uh is is bound to lead to violence against the most poor people and usually because of because of capitalism and because of uh settler colonialism usually brown and black exactly. people Exactly. There's yeah. this term that I like a lot um and I'll, I'll DM you man the the PDF but it's called necrocapitalism. Ooh, I like that. The neoliberal, I guess, iteration of it is just literally just, and capitalism has always been based on that, but now especially it's, it's a market of death, right? Mm-hmm. It really is a market of death. First of all, necro capitalism sounds very much like a fetish. <laughs> it sounds like a theme night at a strip also club. It sounds like a dope Twitter handle. I was going to say, it sounds like a D&D subclass. Like, <laughs> I'm, ne- I'm a necro-capitalist, actually. <laughs> Step up from anarcho-capitalist. Hybrid classes are not allowed. I want to, if y'all don't mind, I want to read this comment. Okay. Um, regarding the drug war and police's pushing gentrification and capital interests in Kentucky, <clears throat> a quarter of black people in Kentucky cannot vote. It is the most disenfranchised state for black Americans. 
Uh, and you know, they use felonies and, and convictions and things like that as a way to like keep you from voting. Brianna was definitely a casualty for profit's sake. Uh, I guess that may be a totally different conversation. I don't know. But in states like Florida, Kentucky, Georgia is also, you made that list. Georgia's on that list too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prison system is also used like convenient bonus. You're no longer like a, a citizen. You still have to pay taxes. You still have to pay in. But mm-hmm. in terms of like, what are your rights? Uh, they're severely diminished. And to make things harder, it's harder to get a job when you're out of jail because somebody will compare you to somebody that's like, well, this other person doesn't have a record. So uh, I'll just pick them. Yeah. And like what's happening in Florida is a good example of how um, even though they're we're, they're trying to make pushes for rights for ex-felons to vote, they now implemented. Um, I was talking to another activist about this and I can't remember exactly um how this worked, but they're, they basically said you have to pay all of your court fees before you can even vote. So after they had passed that felons have the right, you know, convicted felons have the right to vote. The state was like, no, 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 no. Like, uh, you're gonna have to pay for this shit. And so it's like every time we try to make like, this is why incrementalism is a failing, it's a failing idea in my mind because for every incremental change, for every step forward, we get like 10 steps back. Cause who's gonna want hundreds, thousands of dollars in court fees so they can what? Vote for Joe Biden? who might be the reason that they're there in the fucking first place. Dude, it, it, it's a joke. Dude, like, you know, and Rosen Luxemburg and Lennon have thoughts on incrementalism and, you know, participation, electoralism. And it's like, basically, if you're, if you're a communist, if you're, you know, any sort of leftist in the United States, right? Like, let's be just, let's be real with each other. The best that we can hope for is some sort of social democracy, right? Mm-hmm. The best that we can hope for is like, you know, kind of Bernie's platform, right? But at the end of the day, I think what like drives us is the understanding that incrementalism and, and these reforms tend to institutionalize themselves, right? And they often do, especially from liberals with their moralizing good intentions, as we were talking about earlier with sex work, right? And some of these like, you know, anti-sex trafficking bills that people like ghouls like Kamala Harris have like championed. It's like mm-hmm. an author It's just like, no, dude, these actually make the material conditions worse for people, mm-hmm. right? They actually do. I mean, I, I just, I don't know, man. Like, it's, it's. I think, and we'll get into, I guess, the history of Louisville, too, but yeah. it just sort of reminds me of, like, Atlanta is the city that's too busy to hate, right? Mm-hmm. That's what people have often called it. And Kentucky, just historically being, like, a border state, like, the the racial racial relations in Kentucky seem to be one of either like accommodationism right or like this idea of polite racism right Mm -hmm. and like black people in that city have for so fucking long been expected to just kind of like get along right and acquiesce to white leadership in fear Mm -hmm. of retaliatory like fascistic violence you know yeah absolutely it's really interesting that you uh, kind of bring that subject up mm. and you talk about it because I think, well, uh, just among black people, there is like a, a hunger for intermediary reforms that don't make anybody mad. And when you look down the line at these policies that we're worried about and stressing about right now, almost all of them 
were yesterday's intermediary reforms. Like literally the Joe Biden crime bill in 92 was considered like an intermediary reform to what Reagan wanted to do. Um, and Biden would brag sometimes, well, this is better than, this is better than Reagan. But like the stuff that the Republicans wanted to do was far more openly brutal, right? Right. Considered yeah. This crime bill that for the last 25 years, people have been like, we've lost a generation to that mm-hmm. was considered like a moderate, sensible incremental reform. Obamacare, which you know, nobody, unless you're extremely poor and had nothing beforehand, or you're extremely well off and it didn't make a difference to you in either way, uh, nobody's much better off for uh, Obamacare just in terms of not nobody, but there's so much more paperwork that you've got to do. Yeah. Something that's not nightmare household or your life. Uh, so there's this entire gap of people who are caught in the middle where Obamacare literally just made it harder for them to get insurance. That was more uh, of a hurdle to get uh, right. those two like, Hey, that's a moderate, sensible incremental reform. Um, don't ask, don't tell moderate, sensible incremental reform. People now think of it as like an obviously bigoted law, but back mm-hmm. in the Bill Clinton era, that was considered like progressive. And that's the thing, too. What, what kills me about it is, like, the crime bill was a compromise with the Republicans, yeah. which is just so screwed up to think about because the, all the damage it did. That happened because people like Joe Biden, they were they wanted a middle ground between, like, absolutely barbaric and, like, basically letting things go on as much, like, as they were. There they, there was never any, like, counter proposal for just making things, like, more equitable. Like, going, they never, like, that's the problem with, with centrists is it's never... It's like the ratchet, the, the ratcheting theory, yeah. right? It's like they ratchet to the right and it's impossible to go left. It's just, it's like we're seeing all these things and it's like, I'm sure the stuff with the ex-felons in Florida is like a perfect example of that. It's, you know, do, do felons really have rights anymore if they have to pay thousands of dollars to participate in the government again and in, in, in government representation again? Like, no, that's not freedom. That's just feels like more tyrannical, especially when wages are stagnant and rent keeps going up and cost of living keeps going up and healthcare keeps going up. It's like, who the fuck is going to want to pay thousands of dollars just to vote so that they could what have their ballot potentially like thrown out. It's, it's very rare. And we're not even talking. And by the way, when I talk about problems, I don't mean problems in the sense of like, have we passed the bill to eliminate human suffering? That's not, <laughs> that, the bar is not that high. I'm really talking about the bar of just the United States compared to other countries in the world. Um, and th- these other countries, we can all crack open a book and we can talk about the imperialism that underwrites the economy of many of these countries. Let's skip that conversation for a minute and just say that when we talk about the economy, uh, we talk about criminal justice. Um, if we talk about health, uh, health care, if we talk about uh, teachers in schools, we can literally look at our country and other countries that had the exact same problem to the exact same degree. And we can measure how the incremental American approach has happened. And as Aaron said, these, these incremental changes quickly institutionalize themselves, uh, versus other countries that just like made sweeping basic reforms that weren't didn't go through the American lobbying system of everybody with money carving out a special exemption for themselves and their political interests. And we can literally see the United States, despite having like this huge amount of wealth for the top 1%, 
Look at any other metric that's a quality of life metric. That's infant mortality. Um, that's um, reading. That's gap between, you know, the highest and the lowest uh, income. It's the average amount of wealth that the average person has. It's debt. And for all of these numbers, like the numbers to the United States have just been skyrocketing for many mm. years. Mm. So, uh, and that's in comparison to other places. So we're not comparing any of this stuff to a state where regular people have full say in their government. And we're also not comparing it to a world that is free of exploitation. We're just literally comparing it to just across things that already exist. Border. Right. That's mm-hmm. next door to you. Yeah. Because we have in the United States, we have like a country that is uniquely addicted to state violence, like not just violence, but like violence that's perpetuated and uh, supported and underwritten by the government and by the citizens. And it's not something that should be happening. And it's also just like a, a philosophy of punishment. We don't have as a country, like as a if there was an American culture, our our American legacy is one of just punishment. It is has nothing to do with our governing has nothing to do with providing like quality of life for our citizens. It is literally we are punishing the people that get out of line and aren't in lockstep with what we want. And it's just so it's so fascistic and it's it's so demoralizing. But it's also an addictive it's an addictive way of thinking. Because I don't, I don't think most Americans really know what they would do with the freedoms that other countries have. Yeah. What would we do if we weren't working 40 to 80 hours a week? Yeah. People's imaginations in this country, especially if you were born and raised in the stateside, freedom is such a limited scope to these people. They can't imagine a freedom that's just not working your ass off. Yeah, I think, I think too, this conversation. Or when they, uh, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, no. my cat's scratching. No, I think this conversation too covers like, uh, you know, I don't want to plug my own shit. I, I had a conversation with Matt Christman. I had a dope conversation with Matt Christman that you guys are going to really like all of y'all listening out there. Um, where we talked about the civil war and the failure of reconstruction and the, how can I say it? The prevention of interracial working class solidarity, right? And one of the things I think people have to understand in the United States is that and I learned this taking a poli sci class, right? But, you know, one of the questions, thankfully, I had like a sock damn professor. So like he wasn't total lib or conservative, thank God. But we talked about why there's no labor party in the U.S., right? Like an actual labor party. And I think that like one of the things that people have to recognize is that these European countries that have labor parties, like they went through stages and generations, different, several economic modes of production that precipitated a class struggle, right? Feudalism, for example. The only people who had anything like feudalism in the United States were fucking black people, right? You know what I mean? So this is why you can see parallels between the U, uh, between, between the European labor movement and the civil rights movement, right? This country sort of developed like property rights before there were actually any economic rights that developed, right? So this country was founded as a petty bourgeois nation. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I think that, you know, like drawing on historical materialism, kind of understanding like these class relations and these developments helps a lot of people on the left or should help a lot of people on the left to, to, to kind of crystallize this idea that I know people say it all the time, man, but 
I'm not free until we all free, right? Mm-hmm. Like we we cannot have any even nascent socialist movement in this country without also addressing the the oppressive and exploitative history of people of color. Right. Mm-hmm. And Louisville again, like Louisville, am I fucking thinking people are going to get mad at me? Louisville, Louisville. Louisville. I mean, it's hard. Louisville. It's hard. I, I'm just going to say like, I'm saying Atlanta, Louisville. Like, I'm going to yeah. call it whatever I want to call it. I'm going to call it anthropologist. I'm going to Elville, right? But no, like, um, yeah, dude, it is. And I think like Brianna Taylor's death and the history of Kentucky being a border state, mm-hmm. right? Like definitely like factors into that, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, you know, uh, I wanted to touch on the Louisville history because, you know, I, I knew before I even started researching this, and I am not a history buff. Like I, through organizing, I have realized I need to research more. I need to know my history in order to really like synthesize all these ideas that come together. And for this podcast, I was like, I really need to go, we need to go back, right? And we need to like see where it all started. So with Louisville, I'll just give you like a short rundown of what I was like researching. So Louisville was chartered like in the late 1800s. And before the Civil War, it had one of the largest slave trades in the Americas. Um, In the 1850s, slave traders sold 2,500 to 4,000 slaves annually from Kentucky downriver. So actually the expression sold down the river originated. It was a term that came out of Louisville slave trading. Um, and it was literally about like sold down the river literally means the slaves being split apart from their families and Kentucky, like it became a union state, obviously. But after uh, the war, the Confederate veterans came back and they took over the government. Those people that they were fighting against, like that they were fighting against the union soldiers were fighting against, they came back after the war and they took over political power in the city. This is a state that's never been free of right. Like it's, it, it may have been in the union, but it has all the sins of the Confederacy because of the people that were allowed to retain power afterwards. In World War II, it was a major location for like aircraft production. Um, and then the, and then it started declining again economically in the sixties and seventies. So with that, the black neighborhoods also declined. But then all of this development started happening and it started facilitating like expansion right into the sub and everything like that. When we talk about like the like gentrification in Louisville and and how it related to like Brianna Taylor's death murder and how it related to like the violence faced by black people in those communities. This isn't a new thing that's happening. This is part of the project. Like this is part of the colonial project that we keep talking about. Like this is something that never went away. It's just accelerated. The only difference is that we have the ability to see what's happening right now and have a documented evidence of what is happening. But it's always been there. Yeah, I I just want to bring up like um because I was looking at riots in Louisville, and there was Bloody Monday, August sixth, uh, eighteen fifty-five, uh, and it was on Election Day in Louisville where uh, Protestant mobs attacked uh, German and Irish Catholic neighborhoods, right? And mm-hmm. this was uh, precipitated by the Know Nothing Party, um, mm-hmm. which was this weird political party that was anti like sort of social democratic but they were also like rabid anti-nativist 
You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, I think that Rara and Brandon, we can see this on the yeah. aisle when we talk about so-called class reductionists or I don't like that term, but you know what, you know what I mean? Where we're talking about the, um, the friendly fash of the left, right? The supposed left. And, um, even that sort of clash, you know, and understanding that as a border state, the destiny of like Kentucky and Louisville was really in the hands of like a white leadership who wanted to maintain some semblance of a slaveocracy in the mm-hmm. South um, just by social relations, right? And and also, too, like, Kentucky wasn't completely innocent, you know, in, during the Civil War because, like, a lot of other border states, like, they were, like, literally fucking, like, breeding slaves, you know what I mean? And selling slaves, they were a slave market if they did not have actual slavery themselves to the deep south, right? So mm-hmm. all of that kind of history and the sort of abdication of any responsibility for like black lives and brown lives in Kentucky obviously reverberates like to this day, right? Yeah. It's also like, I was really surprised when I was researching this because I was reading about segregation, you know, during the civil rights movement. And even though, um, was it Brown versus Board of Education? Yeah, Brown Brown versus uh, Board of Education, even though that was in like, what, 68, I think? It wasn't until 1975 that the county that Louisville's in was even fully desegregated. 1975. That, to me, like, we are so far behind of, and when, so when people like, and and this is not something I really hear from liberals at all, but like when I hear this from conservatives, it absolutely drives me completely mad. But it's like, oh, um, you know, slavery was 200 years ago. Like everybody's got the same rights now. And it's like, <laughs> we live in a post-racial it, society. You know Rara. About. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> no, black if you don't even have, if you don't even have schools that were desegregated until the seventies, like that is not, everything's not just going to be fine after like 40 years. There's so much work to be done. But yeah, like, so the history of, of over-policing in these communities is like, is extends so far back to like the beginning of the city and also extends all throughout the 20th century because in 1968, there were, there were a bunch of protests. There was a protest led by the Black Unity League of Kentucky called Bulk. And they were protesting the possible reinstatement of a white officer who was involved where the cops allegedly, I mean, let's be real, the cops brutalized two black men during an arrest. So a bunch of people turned out, like hundreds of people turned out to protest the reinstatement of this white officer. And the mayor issued a citywide curfew. Almost 500 arrests were made and two black teenage boys ended up dead. This is in the 60s. Nothing has changed. When people like are critical of Black Lives Matter and I just want to point, like, I just want to point them to every instance in history where this has happened over the past 200 years where it's like, of course there's riots. Of course. Wouldn't you be if your entire existence and the existence of your parents and your grandparents, it was just a chain of brutalizing violence. And I don't have to explain it to you guys, obviously. Mm, I think we all understand that. And y'all more than I do. It really pulls at me. We have so, there's so much ignorance in this country. There's so much propaganda in this country that obscures the truth, which is the truth is that this is an institutionalized violence. It has always been there. It is not a couple of bad apples. It is the whole damn system, and we got to shut it down. Yeah, yeah, man. And I think, too, you know, like, there's 
like again, there's like this really metaphysical aspect to it that just goes even beyond history, man. It's like motivated by it, but there's like this purchase in the like racial libidinal economy where it's like this ritualized murder and slaughter of black people. And you can especially see this, like, just statistically speaking, right? This is not a hot take. Because white people constitute more of the U.S. population and cops are just, like, rabid sociopaths, white people just die at the hands of police officers more than black people. But relative to their population, because they're only 13% of the population, mm-hmm. black people are killed more. But why don't we see these fucking videos often, right, of white people mm-hmm. being killed by the cops, right? It's not something that we see. And it just feels like... This, this, this need to like kill and slaughter and continue this settler colonial project has such purchase in like this, like what I'm saying, this racial labellum economy, you know, mm-hmm. where I, I remember seeing, and it happens with black folks too, right? Prominent black folks, where I remember seeing this Brianna Khan shit, dude. Yeah. Where people were fucking putting her face on a fucking flyer, like this was fucking like, Bushwick, bro. Like the like, memification people... of her murder is bro. one of the really most upsetting things about this whole thing, too. Yo, by like black people that I like, like rhapsodies, like a part of this Brianna Khan event and other like you know black. I hadn't folks, heard like, about the Brianna Khan thing. That is really look gross. Up, yo, it looks. Go ahead, Brandy. You look like you want to say. Go ahead, <laughs> brother. Man, it's <laughs> I mean, good lord. Unfortunately, we have a lot of black people who only interface with like public activities through like the fucking capitalist mode. And as somebody who, I mean, I write advertising. I'm obviously not guilt free of this, but like you only like can think of this, this, this stuff in terms of event planning. So you're like, man, I know oh how to plan it. I know how to put out this club, this club flyer. So I'm going to do the same thing that I do. Not really thinking that like this, this thing that you're doing has no relationship to the actual lever of power that we're trying to pull. Uh, and also, yeah, where, where is this money going? I'm always annoyed when people say, where, where's the money going? Because it just kind of feels sometimes that it's, it's overly cynical. Mm. But for something like that, that you know is a specific sensitive topic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we're, if you're doing a, a gentrification con, it's still a little bit odd. <laughs> But okay. Uh, but you doing something that's about a specific person, uh, is very odd and wild to me. And I know you know this as somebody who, you know, you're in Atlanta and Rara, you too. We, we've gone to like events and marches and shit where like a rando with a megaphone would just start talking and plugging his gram. <laughs> and- or wearing a shirt that has his Instagram on it. Yo, and getting in all the freaking protest pictures. Yeah, yeah I know yeah. that guy. And he's not fucking... I'm sorry. Like, I I know I don't get to say what like, he's invited, names, but, like, no, that's like that, up. that pisses me off. I'll say it. No, that's yeah. fucked up. Some people just don't know it. Like, legitimately don't know any better. Right. Like, that's a group of people who, like... But some people only, are drinkers. Like, yeah, their their only mode of thinking about this is in terms of, like, publicity... So, okay. And then there's other people who are engaged with this on all levels that are just totally cynical. There are so many magazine covers and there's so many corporate shout outs. There's so many banners on websites 
And it's like, what are you doing outside of this banner that is going to pressure the institutions that actually make the decisions and screw things up on the grand jury level, especially if um, you are Oprah Winfrey and by now you're like an older woman and you've lived through Rodney King, you lived through Amadou Diallo, you lived through Trayvon mm-hmm. Martin. So if we can accept just as a premise that you are outraged by this, you've lived long enough to actually see what happens and how all of this works. You've been here mm-hmm. before. Um, and you should know better than anybody else. And I think one of the reasons why younger black folks are frustrated with older black folks, you should know better than anybody else that the solutions that you're talking about, which are to stand in this line and get rained on for three hours to vote, mm-hmm. uh, aren't actual things that solve the problem because you already did that for 20 years and nothing's been solved. Right. And we're having the same conversation over and over and over again. And it feels like I understand like when Zoomer activists are pissed and they want to get out there and fuck shit up or it's like, or just you're a regular person and you don't consider yourself an activist and you get swept up in it. It's like, of course, of course you're going to, of course you're not going to convince people that um, voting is the, is the way to go because it just feels so like it feels so limp dick. I'm sorry. Like it's just so shitty to tell people that are hurting that you just got to vote. Like that is not a, it's not a very um, empathetic answer either. Like it just, it feels like it feels like they're just trying to shut you up. Did y'all, did you know, y'all see, uh, I'm sure y'all saw man, Ava DuVernay, the director of 13th, uh, can I can I read this tweet real Both quick? Of our I'm, faces fucking, I'm not going to say any words that are going to get me in trouble. I'm just going to read this quote real quick, man. Um, this tweet. She says, for those who hadn't been listening for the past four years, Trump just told you that he ain't leaving, that he is a white supremacist. If that doesn't get every American who is not white into overdrive to toss his ass, we may actually deserve what happens next. If, this, this if he ain't leaving, then he ain't leaving. What do you Bruh. mean? Bruh. That's this obvious. Is- Bro, this woman lives in the ten million dollar mansion. What the, what the? What are you talking about, son? Yeah, she is. A, she is a multi millionaire, dude. Like, and this is this is why I get upset. Like, like just like even talking to like like older black folk. Like even sometimes like my mom and my sister. I'm just like, dude. Like as you were saying, Brandon. Right? Either you have lived long enough to experience the futility of electoralism, right? And just this like these half measures. Uh, that the Democratic Party or even not even half measures, like quarter measures that the Democratic Party has been making for the last like 50 years. Right. Or like you just have been sort of like conditioned to think that th- like the Democratic Party has restrained your imagination of what is possible. Right. That is that is the worst thing that that's probably why, like another hot take. I'm sorry. Like liberals, the Democratic Party to me are more insidious than Republicans because what they do is they manage the expectation of their voters. Yo, you have millions of people across the country, right? Like protesting for black lives, dude. And you can't even go up on stage, right? And say that, you know, people say that the police, like, there are a few bad apples, but you know what the rest of the saying is? A few bad apples ruined a bunch, right? Like, maybe, exactly. 
If but of course, really... everything's sloganized in this country. So it's yeah. like it's it's reduced down to like something that that loses its its meaning. It's just like the arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor meme. Like it's a meme now. And it's a meme because we cannot conceptualize things in this country that are past like a slogan or something you throw on a t-shirt. And that, that is like a failing of, of this fucking country to be able to like process ideas that are bigger than like a five word slogan. Well, like, sorry, no, that was a total. No, 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 it's not. It's that, yo, dude, it's like, again, Brandon, y'all, you went on the Trill Billies like the fucking other day, man. I'm ho- I'm, I haven't listened to the episode yet. I'm going to listen to it after this, actually. But they talk about the uh, epistemological crisis. We touched right? on that very briefly. Bro, I'm going to have a whole thing with them about it because I find that so interesting. And Kennedy just post-truth, right? Mm-hmm. Like epistemology is like the philosophy of knowledge, right? So when, when Tom talks about epistemological crisis or the e-crisis, he's talking about like post-truth. The fact that, and I'm sorry for anyone who's, Watch this stream earlier. I'm touching on this again, but it's just something that just like blew my mind. The fact that we supposedly live in a representative democracy and that includes the judiciary, right? In terms of a jury, right? And the fact that the state preemptively declared a state of emergency before we even got the verdict, which was supposedly the will of the people mm-hmm. is like, how do you deal with that contradiction as a human being, right? Living in the United States, right? As someone, especially like who is like struggling for like liberation, right? Like on the one hand, they telling you, yo, this is a democracy vote and you'll get the results that you want because they'll be delegated by representatives of this so-called democracy. But then these motherfuckers, because they already know what the ruling is going to be and they know there's going to be outrage (laughs) in this city, they set up fucking barricades, dude. So what, like I'm caught in this stasis where I'm just supposed to be like, Hey, I'm gonna push the button for Joe Biden, but what are the consequences of doing so? Yeah, right. I know, I know. Uh, Robert, like, how is this gonna oh. fuck me over later? Right? Exactly. Go ahead, Brandon. The thing that's really distressing about it is, Robert, we both know people in our lives who believe that the president is a white supremacist and they're not leaving, and he, that he's mm. not leaving, and they are mu- they are not smug; they're desperate. Hmm. Like, they're not talking, first of all, nobody who really believes that is talking about voting anymore. Right. And on top of that, it's not, it's not cool. It's not something to berate someone with. If you were like genuinely a, a wealthy person who is a critic of, um, a, a, a rising authoritarian leader and you were a student of history, and you saw what happened to people who were critics of rising authoritarian leaders in places like Turkey. Uh, it just seems like the solutions that you would be talking about and advocating for would be much, would be a much more serious mm-hmm. and be much more urgent, uh, than like being snarky for likes. Yeah. Like, yeah, what that, are you getting that, out of that? That and like this is like a this is a political like this whole stuff with uh, Ava DuVernay is very baffling to me because she made uh, the documentary series Thirteenth about the modern day slavery system endorsed by both Republicans How and Democrats. How did you miss the? Okay, this is why like this is why people are uncharitable towards her in this is because. Oh you are just being purposely like you are purposely 
uh, stopping us from having the conversation we need to have so that you can reinforce the system that you have, re- you yourself have reported on and know the depths of its depravity. So when people are like saying, Hey, fuck you, because that's the only response you can have to something like that because you know better, like someone like her knows better. That is my problem with like, it's, it's my problem with rich liberals in general. To be clear, like when I say like, I don't think liberals are like our enemies. I'm talking about like poor liberals because they exist and they're all over the place, right? Poor liberals are duped into this kind of fucking thinking by rich liberals who fucking know better that it's inexcusable to me. So when, when you see a post like this and you see a bunch of leftists respond with just like, Hey, fuck you. It's because there's nothing else to say. You can't reason your, you Eat can't reason dick, with that shut person. Shut the fuck right up. Like, we don't, like, it's yeah. like, this is sim- Can you disappear to your mansion, please? Because, like, the rest of us are out here fucking doing the work. Just, just pump your money into whatever org and, like, leave us the fuck alone. We, but it's actively harmful to put that out into the world. We have, a uh, you know, Q would sometimes say, uh, libs with a lowercase l. <laughs> yeah. like, I like that I like thing. That. Yeah, the non-cancerous libs. He would just feel like and these are, you know, the libs, and they're the regular people that you know we're annoyed with from time to time. But is our right. potential base? They're and normies, then, but they're vic- they're victims of propaganda too. Right, like that's really like they're normies, man. Right, yeah, they're exactly. Normies. The 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 non-toxic normal people. Who are like, my <laughs> uncle's a cop and he's nice. Uh, yeah. And then you have like the capital L libs who are like disingenuous and they really like their like tax cut. Hive. Yeah. Well, most, yeah, most of them. Those people and, are fucking insane. And, uh, they, uh, just want to keep their taxes low and, uh, they are willing to drape themselves in whatever HR approved language. And we, we really just the left. I don't want to start a whole discourse but when we start when we got into discourses we made a mistake because that's the enemy's playing field man like academia is the is literally their specialty is and just like capitalism specialty is figuring out something and sucking the meaning out of it mm-hmm. uh like if you, a miniature version Logan of the hearing that's all it is these days well it's it's like Go ahead, Brandon. A mini, a mini, a mini version of this is the word progressive. Oh my god! Uh, and a version I'm of guilty it, of using that word a lot. <laughs> a version of it this year is corporations using the word solidarity. <sighs> Bruh, like yo, the thing, the thing, man, is that like I, I'm a, I'm a shout out a book, yo, because I would need people to read this fucking book, man. It's called the uh, cap. It's called Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. Um, uh, rest in peace to Mark Fisher. It's an our amazing co-host, book. Our co-host Leia. Uh, it's her one of her. That is her favorite book, if I recall. Her favorite political book. So. I have that shit. Like I printed it out at my school. It's like eighty pages. It's like sitting on my bookshelf, man. And I return to it <laughs> occasionally. And Mark Fisher, he doesn't come up with this term, but it's called um, interpassivity. And what that essentially means is he uses the movie because he was a cultural theorist as well, right? So he uses a lot of uh, movie references and like music and stuff like that to pretty much. Uh, describe or talk about late stage capitalism, neoliberalism. And he, this term interpassivity, he gives the example of Wally where Wally, if you haven't seen that movie is basically the story about this fucking robot who lives in like a post human society where uh, humans have left the earth to colonize space because there's just too much fucking garbage on the planet. Right. It's, that's a kind rendition of uh interpretation of what we're going to go through. Uh, but 
interpassivity is like you can you can watch a film like Wally, which is not explicitly anti-capitalist, but does have anti-capitalist themes with regard to overconsumption and consumerism, and you could pay for that ticket uh, made by this multi-billion-dollar corporation and feel as if you are performing anti-capitalism itself, right? Um, the inter uh, is the inter. The prefix is sort of this interface right between media and yourself and the passivity is the fact that you're not actually doing anything that's active right and liberals i think perform interpassivity i mean people call it virtue signaling as well but i think interpassivity is like a great term because netflix can have a category like which they probably do now still this is black lives matter where they have like a bunch of films with like black actors you know directed by black people, produced by black people about black stories. But that doesn't actually really do anything to change and shift the social consciousness, like the paradigm of race relations in this country. So mm -hmm. like liberals, besides just moralizing, like they actually produce anti-capitalist, like anti-racist work without performing any anti-capitalist, capitalism or anti-racism. They think they you know? can... They think they can consume media out of racism or just like if they show somebody the right piece of media, they won't be racist anymore. Oh, it's completely insane like, because that's not the way that fucking people think, right? Like if you tell somebody that like, shit, man, I'm fucking quoting Matt. But like if you tell somebody that like, yo, you're going to get fired from your job for being racist and not participating in this diversity program – why would that make one of, why would that want to make people like be anti-racist, right? Like poor white people. It's not going to do it, right? It, it, it's the same term with like, and this is a different conversation, but it's the same concept with the term like white privilege, right? Like, do I believe in white privilege? Sure. Yeah, the hell I do. Do I think as a canvasser, as someone who's actually knocked on doors for this ghoulish party, do I think that that's like <laughs> a helpful thing to say to like white people that you have privilege because you're white? No, it's fucking yeah. not, dude. No, it's a rhetorical cudgel that will like, it'll guilt some white people into it. But what it often does is just entrench anyone in whatever ideology that they were already leaning towards anyway. So liberals would be entrenched in identity politics and then racists would be entrenched in the fact that like, oh, I'm getting canceled because I'm a racist because this person said I was a racist. Every, every like, time some dumbass like fucking like sock dem like progressive online who writes for fucking like Jezebel or fucking like some stupid ass fucking like, I mean, I mean, it, like, like, so all these, like, publications, like, these weird, I pick Jezebel, like, people are gonna call me fucking misogynist now. No, but like, I'm picking one <laughs> person specific that, like, I don't want to, like, name out, call out. Um, but like every time you say some stupid shit, like white men shouldn't write black characters, a fascist somewhere smiles, right? You're giving them all the ammo that they fucking need, right? Like it's, it's just so performative too. It's yeah. like, oh, like white men aren't just gonna stop writing. Like it's yeah. like no one's gonna look at that and be like, you're right, I'd stop. So you want white people to only <laughs> write about white people? That sounds yeah, like a dangerous the, slippery slope. Yeah, let's bro. segregate media. Even the thing that they actually it. want, the thing that they actually want is like they want. Th that's not really for the regular people that are reading that. That's for like the execs at Netflix. <laughs> yeah. They want to make sure that they get and. This is like the Ruth Bader Ginsburgism. Libs <laughs> are obsessed. <laughs> the upper class libs are obsessed with getting the last promotion. They've worked their way up to a certain point, 
And they've got whatever systemic issue is keeping them from getting that last gig that they really want. Uh, and they're like, listen. As the, as, the, as the world burns, it's like, yes, so the world, you got that Netflix deal. Let me make sure I get this ticket so I can get that deal. Can I get the Netflix deal before the world sets on fire? Because we got like 10, 10 years left. And if I can get one here. white person to dropping out of the line ahead of me, I can finally get my TV show made. Which oh. is what, it's funny because that's every white racist fear about affirmative action. Yes, is that it's, it like, is. it's like them. It's it's yeah. like someone taking their spot, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. yeah but man. that is what they want. They're like, give me personally your spot, and that's uh, like if you just follow radical academic Twitter, that's they all just are so obsessed with. Like the only civil rights is when they have a better job. Like this nigga Ibrahim Kendi, ex Kendi, whatever the fuck. Oh, his I'm name reading is, his bro. book right now. That nigga's trash, bro. Fuck out of here. I have it literally right here. I'm reading I his books. I mean, his books are good, but his tweets are terrible, and it gives me some like deeper indication and implication of like his actual character. He's just another. I don't know about him making a judgment, but I'll yeah, just I don't, trust I you. I haven't on read it. the book, and I've only seen most of the tweets I see from him are bad tweets. But I, don't, I haven't seen but his tweets. Man, that makes me mad because I just got his book. Did I really just give that guy money? Well, like, read the book. I mean, no, no, uh, it's a good book. book. Like, yeah. no, no, his books are good, dude, and I think they're important. You know, when he talks about like, um, you know, actually actively being anti-racist and stuff like that, like I think that's good, but it's just like. Again, it's the same thing with Ava DuVernay. I mean, if we want to like take it across the aisle and take it back to Louisville, it's like David fucking. What I keep saying, David Cameron, yo, like that's like the prime minister from <laughs> the, the, UK. the UK. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know what his name <laughs> Who is. Who knows man. the guy's name? It's fucking Cameron something, man. You know, uh, but it's like, yo, you're just using this opportunity as a stepping stone to like power in a platform, man. And like black liberal elites are not like you know, uh, they they are guilty of this as well, right? Yeah, I would say uh, like I I would push back against that, and like not to play like devil's advocate mm -hmm. or whatever. But it's like when I've pointed out like things, like not not to the extent of like white people shouldn't be writing POC characters, but when I've said stuff like similar to that, like and what I meant was like to have more nuance. But like when I've said stuff stuff similar to that about like comedy, where it'd be like yeah, white like comedy skews white male and da 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 da. Um, I've been like accused of being like, oh, you're a failed comedian, so of course you'd say mm. that. Like, you're you're a failed female comic, so of course you'd say that. Failed. I really hate that. Cr- I don't. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's kind of like a case by case basis because there's people genuinely out there that care about that as an issue. Like, because I care genuinely about issues of accessibility and uh, not necessarily representation, but just having like a better opportunities for for people that are like poor and femme and stuff like that. Like, I when I make those observations, it's not necessarily because like I want the Jimmy Kimmel job. <laughs> it's like no, I want like well, no, it's like it. this is stuff that I observed. <laughs> I mean. The thing is, like, I don't want, I don't want those late night talk show gigs. Like, what the fuck would I ever you do? You want the platform, like that? but you don't I'm want, yeah, that, the platform would be tight. Yeah, it's like, I, I realized a long time ago that that was not going to be the route for me. So I don't think I'm a failure because I gave up on it. It's just that I don't want to participate in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I want to, but, but like, there, I feel like there's legit criticism, but it's like, yeah, you do have to kind of differentiate between like the grifters and the people that are genuinely have like a concern about their community that they're involved and in, there's, right? There's a third group that's in there. There's, there's the grifters. There are the people who are genuinely concerned. And there's also like people that want <laughs> an authentic Takira product. 
uh, <laughs> and they've got they've gotten so much Netflix, right? They've the regular stuff is not good enough for them. They need the pure grain authenticity when they're looking at characters. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's and that I guess it's more neutral. I guess it's, I mean. It's fun. It's not like we need more badly written characters. Right. Um, and I, I do get the argument. And this is another, like, we can do this on another episode about media representation and, like, the limits of, like, representation. The fact that, like, when people say certain actors shouldn't portray, like, marginalized identities and stuff like that. Like, we can we can do that in another episode because I think that's totally valid. I do think that there are different camps here and you have to use your best judgment to figure out, like, what, what camp you're looking at. Do you want to uh, read Karina's comment that's been sitting here since? Sure, let's do it. I had to get I off Facebook. I offended my racist, privileged friends by posting about them being racist and privileged. This is like the first step when you get woke. I want to go further and be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Let's Thank say you, you've been Whoever on you are. for like a month and you've alienated everyone you know because you've... <laughs> 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 but um, we've talked about this for a little while. Number one, what's the solution? Well, a lot of it is a lot of these problems that we're talking about are not your individual problems with the weirdos that are in your Facebook group. <laughs> so I, I would say the first thing you do, find other people who are working on this systemic problem. Because first of all, you'll have backup in your Facebook conversations, uh, which is cool. Uh, you'll, you'll get a bunch of new Facebook friends recommended to you. And Look. you won't feel like you're being gaslit. Like. Yeah for feeling the things that you're feeling take take an hour and build your build your your personal social network um and just talk to other people who are working on the same problems that you're working on and that's going to solve multiple problems because number one you will listen to people that know more about the subject than you and you'll sound smart and number two you'll get access to like reading the the books that have been read about it um even if you don't read every book even if you just read like once in a while, it will just make you much more eloquent about these subjects than your your friends on Facebook who have never really thought about this stuff in any detail and have mm-hmm. just heard things on the radio and they're like, I'm good. What do you mean? I earned this, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so don't, I would say in that, that kind of situation, don't go it along and look, uh, I'm, me and Aaron may, might not be the, the right people and Raram also might not be the right person because like, I'm not, I'm dead. Both of us have, all, all of us I'm have relatives that are maybe a little bit more, we're not on that 101 level of like, get with the program, do, is racism a thing? All of us like have families. That's, it's tiring. Like, yeah, it's also it. just like, you have to strike a balance. If this is the work you really want to do, if this is the work you really want to do of educating people around you, and like, this is not just for, this is not just for the newly woke. Like, if you, if you are like in a, if you're in like a conservative area and you don't really have a lot of like liberal friends or don't have a lot of leftist friends or whatever, and you want to put in the work to like convert the people you love and care about, by all means, do that work, but realize that you should have some boundaries with these people as well. Because at the end of the day, if you are pulling your hair out and you are mentally exhausted and you're crying and you feel misunderstood all the time, it's not good for you either. You have to take care of your brain. You have to take care of your emotions. And I know that sound, that sounds very liberal, but like it is true because this is a long struggle. And if you are undergoing the long-term project of pulling people out of ignorant thinking, 
like you need to pace yourself. Like it's not going to happen in one conversation. It's probably not going to happen in five. Educating yourself and being like emphatic in your beliefs and being patient will go a long way. Yeah, we, we, we should get a, like a not safe reading list up, man, where we all kind of like, you know, like we should, we should, like a Joe Rogan. Yeah, we should, we should get that going in like a Google doc or something, but like, That's um, a good idea. My, my suggestion, write that, I'll write that down too, Brandon. As well. Um, we're all like, yeah, let's do shit. Um, but no, like my, my suggestion with that as well too, with family members like that is, you know, we're like, first of all, you know, you meet people where you're, where they're at. You know what I mean? Yes. That can be, uh, yeah. Yeah. As a, as a canvasser again for like, I, I should be canceled for this, but as a canvasser for over six, seven years for the Democratic Party, hmm. uh, I have talked to tens of thousands of people and I always try to, I don't do it anymore. Fuck that. But I have always tried to approach it as I don't know who's going to be behind this door. Um, I don't know their life. I don't know their lifestyle. I don't know the things that have given them certain political views, but I am going to, by listening, um, I'm going to intuit some sort of like, this is how I'm going to approach you and meet you where you're at. I'm going to meet you halfway. Right. On the contrary, if to a certain point, like again, as a cancer, when you're talking to that voter at the door and he ain't getting through, you just walk the fuck away, right? Like, it's okay to, especially with family members, it doesn't mean you abandon them. I'm not telling you that. It doesn't mean, like, you don't go over to, like, for Thanksgiving and Christmas or fucking Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, right? Whatever anymore. <laughs> but, like, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, you just, like, you, you don't you don't have to talk about it because for every family member that's, like, a fucking chud who you can't get through to or, like, some fucking lib... Like, there's somebody that's going to be at the, like, checkout line at fucking, like, your local grocer or something like that or somebody on the street who's going to listen to you or sitting next to you on the bus that you can, like, talk to and reach, right? So, yeah. like Rara said, right, like, I, I've always said that this is, like, the, the never-ending battle, right? This is the never-ending struggle, you know what I'm saying? That's also the name of an Alan Moore Superman comic. Yeah. Right? Very, actually, is it? Yes, it is. It's also the man who has everything, but whatever. I'm mixing things up. It doesn't matter. The point is that, um, you know, you meet people where you're at until you can't anymore, right? You don't exhaust yourself any further than that, you know? Yeah. And you got to remember that whenever you're talking to somebody and where you're talking to them on Facebook, or you're talking to them in person or whatever it is, you are only like a small slice of that person's life. Mm -hmm. Unless you're fucking that person, <laughs> you are not like an overwhelming figure in that person's like mental frame or whatever. You are like a little bit of noise, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So your goal is not necessarily to convert that person to hit your worldview. And even in a religious organization, you know, you're knocking doors and you're talking to people. Your goal is not to convert somebody to join your religion on the spot, right? Your right. goal is really to have them talk to you again some, some other day. So really, when you're talking about like political messaging, your goal is... One is to keep the line of communication open with that person. If, if your goal really is to have, you know, conversations with them. And it's also, um, to move them not from a one to a 10, but from like a one to a three or a one mm -hmm. to a two. So that hurt. So a person who might not uh, agree with the protests that are happening in Louisville can, can still be convinced that a no knock warrant is a overreach of government power. Mm -hmm. And so if you can, so if they get their bristles up about one thing, you can get them to say, well, do you think that the government really has the the right to do this kind of action? Right. And if not, isn't that, and 
first you get them to agree to that. And then maybe the next time you talk, isn't that a worse imposition on your personal liberty than people holding a sign a city away from you? Uh, these are all like micro conversations, obviously. Right. But they're just getting that first, get, just get, get your foot in the door of a person. And you don't need to convince them about like systemic racism and shit like that. Like the conversation we're having right now is like a level 10 uh, uh, <laughs> get them to level two. It's fine. Level ten rhetoric. And <laughs> rhetoric. Put the points in, you know. <laughs> no, no, man. Thank you, Karina. Yeah, thank you, Karina. I mean, yo, at the at the end of the day, man, like our our ideological project, man. This is why the Democrats will always fucking lose because they don't have a long term ideological project. They have no actual end goal. But as uh, as leftists, as communists, socialists, anarchists, our long term ideological project requires us to actually like people to some degree, right? To try and connect with people to some degree, but to also be stringent in our values and in our positions, right? Mm -hmm. And to understand that like, bro, you just move on to the next door, right? It's all you do is you move on to the next door because I am a cautious optimistic. You know what I mean? I'm a cautious optimist, I say, right? Um, I'm, and I, I really do think that there are more people out there that would align with our views and our message as long long term anti capitalist like you know um, emancipatory project than those that wish to do us harm, right? So you know you just be patient, man. You be patient and you try to meet people where they're at. Like I I used to work at a at a, a diner, man. And um, they used to call me comrade there and shit because I call everybody I work like it's kind of like corny, I guess. But I call everybody I work with comrade, you know, it's part of the mm -hmm. political education I do when I used to work in kitchens. And I would go up to like the grill dudes and I'd be like, bro, uh, how, 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 how much are those pancakes that you make, bro? And he'd be like, oh, like, I don't know, man, look at the menu, seven dollars. I was like, word. How much how, do you get paid many, an hour? How many pancakes did you make an hour? <laughs> and he'd be like, yeah. damn, bro, like probably like 20. I'm like, word, word, bro. How, <laughs> how much, how much are you getting played? And this, 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 yeah. like, I'm just this, asking for no reason. For no like, reason. Yeah. I mean, but this underscores surplus value, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like you can literally like in reading, reading is, this is why we got to get this not safe and wants reading list too, man. Yes. Well. Like reading is super important. Like I'm not going to be the theory guy, but if you can apply that theory that you read to everyday conversations with people to make people understand how exploited they are, or if we're talking about a movement like Black Lives Matter, why defunding the police, abolishing ICE, these things are like necessary, like even just ending qualified immunity. You know what I mean? Like these are just necessary measures. If you can do that, then like, yeah, man, like I think the... I think that you'll you'll be a you'll be a good comrade and organizer. You. Yeah, this is I, I like the turn that this conversation took because it's like ending on a much more uh, positive place than we started. And I'm not going to be like the posy vibes only podcast chick, but like you I think be. it is. Then, then we need new you we need not a positive we need not a vibes, well we need no i'm a complete nihilist yo i don't i'm a posadist so fuck all that <laughs> but like no i'm kidding i'm not but like yo we need some sincerity on the left we need a new sincerity yeah. it's not a bad thing yo. and it doesn't have to be fucking squishy squishy like kumbaya moralization we don't yeah, have to yeah, do yeah, that yeah. we don't have to do that like but i'm just like i always tell people this if your politics if your ideology is rooted in love and 
respecting other people and wanting dignity for other people and yourself, that should be your compass. Like that's your North Star, right? Love. That's, that's what it is. And if you ever start doubting that, you got to go back to that and meditate on that and think about it. Um, yeah. So I think this is a good place to like wrap this conversation up. I think we're going to end the stream early, but I want everybody to do one last plug before we go. So let's start with Brandon. Let's see the promised land. You can go at the promised mm-hmm. game on Twitter. Uh, that's going to be like really hot, like a week and a half from now. I got to move though. So I'm, I'm really working on that and getting myself settled in some new digs. I'm also not safe for wonks at NSF wonks uh fun place fun things happening yeah. and um what else do i have to plug you can just venmo me at brandon <laughs> yeah that just give us happen. money straight yeah, up like we're not money. trying to grift you like we need the money like grift it all right <laughs> that's all i'm doing uh, what am i doing again oh You're yeah yeah um that podcast yeah, yeah yeah my bad i'm getting kind of yeah. drunk now okay so <laughs> i i do have a podcast uh coming out it's called a time of monsters it's going to be talking to smart, influential guests on the radical left, uh, journalist organizers about uh, our descent into barbarism, the radical left struggle against it. I haven't launched the Patreon yet, and this I'm not going to post it, but I just got a patron. I have two patrons so far because people have found me out. Uh, so if you want to become an early patron, exclusive <laughs> news, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash adampod, like Adam Bomb. And, um, yeah, that's what I got going on. Thank you so much for talking with me. Um, and I'm looking forward to having y'all on as a guest again in the future and being a, being a guest on your podcast as well. I'm already setting that up, dude. Like based on the (laughs) conversation that we had like earlier today, I'm like, yo, like the first time I'm about to do the whole podcast circuit again. I also want, I also (laughs) want you to come on and talk about Star Trek. So we might need to do like two separate episodes. I think Star Trek is fascistic actually. Like they fly around in ships, they're Navy, they're, they're scientists that fly military scientists with guns on their ships. I'm a Trekkie, but like they're, 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 I don't know how comradely they, they are when you look (laughs) beneath the the veal, you know? So I thank y'all so much and we'll see y'all again. And I'm going to do my plugs as soon as I hear y'all. Peace. That was episode two of the Hot Girl Agenda podcast. The Patreon is really starting to fill out and we are so close to our $100 goal, which helps me get new headphones because shockingly, the Skull Candy headphones I got in 2013 that are held together by scotch tape are not up to professional recording standards. Huh. So if you enjoyed the episode, head over to patreon.com slash islandgoth. Subscribing at the $3 level gets you hooked up with all sorts of goodies, including bonus content, a weekly blog post, and updates on my latest projects. If you can't catch the live stream every Wednesday from 6 to 8 p.m. EST, you can watch the full-length episodes on Twitch and YouTube. Just search Hot Girl Agenda and click subscribe. See you next week.